On the thirteenth day of the twelve month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities in all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those determined to destroy them. No one could stand against them because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors and the king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces and he became more and more powerful. The Jews struck down all their enemies with a sword, killing and destroying them, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed Parsandatha, Dalphon, Aspatha, Poratha, Adalia, Aradatha, Parmasatha, Erizai, Eridai, and Vazatha, the ten sons of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. The number of those killed in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king that same day. The king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? It will also be granted. If it pleases the king, Esther answered, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also, and let Haman's ten sons be impaled on poles. So the king commanded that this be done. An edict was issued in Susa, and they impaled the ten sons of Haman. The Jews in Susa came together on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they put to death in Susa three hundred men, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of them, but did not lay their hand on their plunder. This happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. The Jews in Susa, however, had assembled on the 13th and 14th, And then on the 15th, they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. That is why rural Jews, those living in villages, observe the 14th of of the month of Adar as a day, day of joy and feasting, a day for giving presents to each other. Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, that they should celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar, as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month when their sorrows were turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote to them to observe the days as as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of foods to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun, doing what Mordecai had written to them. But Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the purr, that is the lot, for their ruin and destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews 
should come back on his own head, and that he and his sons should be impaled on poles. Therefore, these days were called Purim, from the word pure. Because of everything written in this letter, and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them, the Jews took it on themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who join them should be should without fail observe these two days every year in the way prescribed and at the time appointed. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation, by every family, and in every province, and in every city. And these days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of these days die out among their descendants. So Queen Esther, daughter of Abihail, along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter concerning Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews in the 127 provinces of Xerxes' kingdom. Words uh, words of goodwill and assurance to establish those days of Purim at their designated times, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had decreed for them, and as they had established for themselves and their descendants in regard to their time of fasting and lamentation. Esther's decree confirmed these regulations about Purim, and it was written down in the records. King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores, and all his acts of power and might, together with a full account of the greatness of Mordecai, whom the king had promoted. Are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Media and Persia? Mordecai, the Jew, was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews, and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews, because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Rosie, thank you very much for reading that uh, uh, long reading and uh, getting through those uh, names as well. Um, uh, it's, it's really uh, good to be back with you, um, and we're going to take a look at that uh, in just a moment. Um, it has been, it's been quite a big week for me personally. Um, if you weren't able to be with us um, last week, you'll have seen, this is the picture of uh, the service that we had. Um, uh, so uh, my great thanks again to those who made the service possible and the lovely refreshments afterwards, and, and we were all gathered here. And if you weren't able to be here, that's the, the bishop and, uh, and, and me, and that's the, um, you know, the flowing white robes and that sort of thing. It's been quite a big week. Um, I've been getting back into things. Um, to my great surprise, then on Thursday... Um, I discovered not only I was made rector last Sunday, on Thursday I was then appointed as Chancellor of the Exchequer, um, which was quite, um, which is quite news to me, and I think it's, it's going to add to my portfolio of work. Um, uh, I, I, I guess, I guess you can do both. Um, that's, uh, um, that's what lies ahead. Um, it was, it was a surprise to me, as it was to many others, I think. And, um, but it's uh, um, it's exciting. Um, uh, uh, that was the uh, the events and revelations of this week. Now, it is going to be. This is very little to do with Esther, I should tell you. Um, we are finishing the book of Esther, and um, if you've been with us um, through the past few weeks, you'll have worked through the story, the dramatic story that it is. And we come now to this end, which is strangely quite different to the rest of the story. Um, two um, films not too long ago were produced and made, two excellent films, both of them, about the events in um, northern France uh, in 1940, um, 
the threatened soldiers um, who were on the beaches of northern France and needed rescuing. And two films were made about that from slightly different perspectives and with different tones. The film uh, on the left there, The Darkest Hour, which has Gary Oldman play Winston Churchill, um, is, uh, is, is brilliant. It is funny. Um, it is full of larger-than-life characters. Uh, Churchill, uh, Lily James plays his secretary. There's, um, there's all sorts of kind of there's goodies and there's baddies, and, and it's tense and exciting, and you kind of realise how uh, dramatic it was, particularly through the lens of, uh, of Churchill himself um, and what, uh, what he went through to enable the rescue and encourage the rescue of those who were stranded. Um, the second film, Dunkirk, if you ever have time to see it, um, is completely different. Uh, it's more like documentary reporting. It's set in and around the beaches themselves. It follows some different soldiers and their experiences. It is tense. Um, it is kind of close up. Uh, you, there are soldiers at, at times who just, uh, who just die, and you think, gosh, that's another life gone. Uh, you meet a soldier along the way uh, who is clearly suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. And you think this is the human cost of what was going on here to, uh, to, to these soldiers and in their rescue. Two, the same events and two different completely angles, different uh, perspectives on it. And the reason I kind of wanted to uh, put those up for you is that's almost like the way the book of Esther works. Chapters 1 to 8, everything we've had so far, is like The Darkest Hour, in the sense that it has these characters who are larger than life, and there are, a lot of it is very comical. There are these scenes of reversals. If you've been here, you'd have seen the, the goodies and the baddies, and, the, and things when things switch around, and, and how they are um, brought to life. And you see it through the lens of Esther, or Mordecai, or Haman, or whoever it might be. And then the last two chapters that we have here today changes... And it's no longer those kind of funny characters. Uh, it's more like serious news reporting. It's more like Dunkirk. The tone of it is much closer up, the details of what happens, um, as we'll see as we look through it. Now, why the change? Why, have, why end the book this way? Why do we need that? Why are we given it in our Bibles? I think because for all the humour and the comedy um, which brings to life what happens to God's people, this marks a challenging moment in their history and they come close to being wiped out. It's a very serious point in their history. They come close to being wiped out. They are preserved just. And we'll see um, why I think the writer um, portrays it in this way. So um, would you take a look with me um, uh, and we'll work through. Although it's long and there's quite a lot in it, because it divides into two parts which are quite, I think, relatively easy to get your head around. And the first long section is that the people survive. It is the account of their survival and what happens um, to them. The summary that comes in verse 1 sort of sets things up um, on this day, the enemies of the Jews, who'd hoped to overpower them, um, now the tables are turned on them, and the Jews get the upper hand over those who hated them. So there is this reversal. We looked at that last week um, in particular. There is a reversal of fortunes and situations, um, and that's the summary of what happens. 
but it's not comic reversals anymore or amusing scenes. Now it's like you sometimes maybe have seen a BBC news correspondent. You know, on the news, they then say, we, we now go over to our news correspondent who is live in. Now, in this case, Susa, the, the capital of the, um, uh, of the region and the empire there. So they are um, moving across to Susa. And you have to imagine the reporter sort of saying, I'm, uh, it's, it's dusk now in Susa. Uh, it has been a tense day of, uh, of, of conflict, uh, of some bloodshed, uh, on this first day, um, uh, verse 5, uh, you remember there were two edicts, an edict that allowed those who opposed the Jews uh, to destroy them, and then a second edict that was given to allow the Jews to defend themselves. And the correspondent, if you like, is telling you how that has played out. A day of tension and uncertainty. Uh, the Jews have struck down their enemies with the sword, uh, destroying them. Uh, in total, uh, the, you know, the reporter would say, uh, 500 are known to be dead. Um, and indeed, these 10 sons, the 10 that were bred out, the sons of Haman. Now, why those? Because they are, that's the, there was a taking out of the hierarchy of opposition to the Jewish people. Uh, the sons who would have been a part of his um, family. And then your correspondent would have given you the second day because what we're told is that Esther asks for the edict to be extended for a day. And verse 13, if it pleases the king, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow. Um, and so the reporter would tell you that, again, after a, a second day uh, of uh, tension and strife, a further 300 are known to be dead. Uh, 300 who had sought the destruction of the Jews. And you see, the, 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 the way it's presented is, uh, is, is like reporting. It's, it's, it's minimal. It's, uh, uh, it's descriptive of what happens. It's not quite like the larger-than-life characters we've had in the eight chapters until now. Uh, the the um, extension of the edict um, is given in um, those verses 12, 11, 12, 13. The writer doesn't tell us how to view that whether we're supposed to see that as a good thing or a bad thing, it is just reported as is. Clearly, there was still some threat in the city uh, and the destruction of the Jews was still possible, hence the request. Overall, we're told in verse 16, looking at the wider province, uh, it's known that uh, 75,000 have died uh, as the Jews have defended themselves. And in the midst of this, um, uh, in verse 10, uh, in verse 15, and in verse 16, we're told three times, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Now, it's an unusual phrase. You might have kind of heard it read out. It goes back into Old Testament times. It is part of, I guess, placing the boundaries around what they were doing in terms of their defense of their people. They weren't looking to take the plunder, you know, the, the spoils of, of, of warfare. They weren't trying to raid uh, the, the things that they could accumulate. In one sense, what it's trying to underline is that this is not a colonial act. They're not trying to gain territory. There are uh, circumscribed boundaries on what they are doing in terms of their defense um, and in terms of uh, the warfare that they are engaged in. And the writer is, again, is a matter of fact about it. Uh, it's like documentary reportage. Um, in verses 18 and 19, we're even given, it sort of seems like a strange detail. Because of what happened with the two days in the city of Susa, 
they celebrate uh, on the 15th, after the 13th and 14th, whereas some more rural areas celebrate on the 14th, having had only one day, um, and he's accounting for that. So it's much more sober-minded, and the people survive. It's, it's laid out as simply as that. The people have been preserved, the people have survived. And then the, the, the second movement, the last part, um, is that the people need to remember. The people need to remember. The whole emphasis then sort of shifts to administration. Again, it's quite flat in uh, what it's trying to tell you. It shifts to administration. Verse 20, uh, Mordecai sends these letters around to the provinces. They are picked up, um, uh, detailing um, that they are to celebrate annually this point of change when sorrow turns to joy, mourning to a feast day of celebration. Um, the Jews agree in verse 23. They rehearse some of the events. Um, it was when Haman had plotted against them. Um, they have... Uh, had orders to defend themselves, and they have done so, that it's come back on his own head. And verse 26 to 28, if you look at the phrases, or you listen to them as they were read, and they're establishing this custom, Purim. Pur was, um, if you remember earlier in the story, was the dice that was cast to decide what day the Jews would be destroyed. And so the festival comes from that, Purim comes from that uh, lot cast, that die cast. Uh, without fail, they're to observe these days. Every generation, every family, every province, every city, they should never fail to do it, and the memory should never die out among their descendants. If you've ever been here for a Remembrance Day service, or been to a Remembrance Day event, it's very much like that, the tone of it. It's sober, uh, it's serious, uh, words of remembrance. This is what they need to do. It's not exciting in some ways. And the Jews still mark and celebrate this festival today. Jewish, if you're from a Jewish background, you may know there's uh, somebody who um, was a part of this congregation and uh, who uh, wrote in and, and sent in just had to describe what the celebration might be like. And the Book of Esther is still read in the synagogues. Um, uh, the, the festival um, involves um, uh, retelling the story again. Um, it still has an important um, place in Jewish custom. Uh, it was remembered in particular through the Nazi era. And you can imagine why that was, why Jewish people remembered particularly these events uh, during the Nazi era. And you can imagine why it meant to the, much to them then, and in some ways, stepping back, you think there's a reasonable contemporary resonance to it for those who have a Jewish background in our culture today. It's flat and sober-minded. It's a day of remembrance, yes, a day of feasting. I wonder why does the writer end the book this way? Having set things up, he could have ended it in so many different ways. Why, why it ends here, I don't quite... Uh, I think it's the question that we, we, we have to wrestle with. And what is it telling us about God? I think it is this. To show us that partial relief has come. But they still need something more. He ends the, the book this way, to show us that partial relief has come, but they still need something more. Have a look... And we'll have a look at those last um, verses in, 
in chapter 10. Just for a moment, though, step back and think. At this point in their history, God's people are dispersed across this empire, uh, a pagan empire. The days in which um, sort of the height of uh, the exodus and being rescued from uh, slavery and and forming a a nation and a people, um, being given a a place, um, the heights of King David ruling over them or Solomon and the temple, that part of their history is long gone. They are dispersed They are largely a remnant, and they are very nearly wiped out here. And yet the prophets who spoke to them at this time and in the the years just before had spoken of far more for God's people than this. Prophets had spoken, uh, if you get get time at any point to read Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 32, for example, speaks of a, has a phrase, undisturbed rest that God's people would one day enjoy. Blessings uh, as a people, a restored people and and land, uh, blessings of uh, rest from their enemies. That undisturbed rest, a full and a final relief. But here, when they, when they survive, um, chapter 10, um, there's a strange verse that is thrown in. You might wonder why it's there. King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores. Um, uh, tribute is like a tax. We're at the realm of talking about taxes at the end of this book. Um, and uh, it's also translated forced labor. So he's exacting what he wants from this empire. This is the empire they are under. And so it is good that Mordecai is there and he's doing what he can to aid the welfare of his people. Uh, you see, he spoke up for the good of his people. He spoke up for the welfare of the Jews in verse 3. But it's as if the writer is saying... God's people are preserved, but it isn't complete. It's not full and final yet. Yes, it is, uh, uh, it is good. They have survived. They will need to remember. But in a sense, the very act of needing to remember reminds them of the threat that is still there and is real for them. And it leaves us wondering, I think as we read it, where will this final relief come from? It's not what the prophets have promised. It doesn't feel like it yet, under the rule of Xerxes. So the tone of the book and the way it ends is really helpful, I think, for for understanding what we're meant to take from it. It's, It's celebratory, but serious. They have been preserved, but it's not full and final yet. And the reason I... Kind of, I've been uh, sort of bringing to mind Dunkirk and everything that happened uh, at that point. It's partly because I think it can help illustrate, uh, just to kind of catch the sense of where you are at the end of the Book of Esther. I'm going to play a short clip in a second from, um, it's the very end of Dunkirk, the more kind of reported version uh, of the story. Um, And it's after they have all been rescued and they have all been brought back. And it catches that balance of a celebratory yet sober and serious tone. Uh, you'll see, um, in, you'll see in there, uh, there are pictures of what they have left behind. You'll see a, a burning plane uh, on the beach, and you'll see one of the soldiers who is then caught and taken away. But the others who come back, uh, and well, let me let me show you, and then we'll uh, we'll sort of wind this together. 
shall defend our island whatever the cost may be. What? We shall defend our island whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. island or a large part of it was subjugated and starving, and our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle, until, in God's good time, the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. And so if the people are survive, they survive and they need to remember, it's survival isn't the end of the story and not meant to be. And you get this moment at the end of that, uh, that film, the tone that it catches, if you like, as Christians, as we read the book of Esther, as we look back at it, you might do so in the same way that you would watch movies about Dunkirk. This was 1940, this was the the beginning, there was some years to go yet. So there was this moment of celebration and yet sober-mindedness. You kind of catch it as you you see there, they've made it back, Uh, the crowds who are welcoming them as they come in on the train. Uh, But the voice with which the soldier who's on the train reading those words, those are words that Churchill had written um, and he's reading them from a newspaper. And the flat way in which he reads them, almost as though, is this really, is this really here? Is this a victory or not a victory? What have we got yet to come? They have made it. It's a celebration. But the scale of what was needed is still clearer. The enemy is still out there. And in the words that get used there, nothing less than a new world is going to be needed. Um, and Esther, is, a, is both a victory and a reminder that God's people are still waiting for that full and final relief. It's not fully with them yet. And I think that's where this story of Esther can draw us in and help us understand our own story. If you're a Christian here this morning, the New Testament calls those who are Christians uh, as, as the true children of Abraham, God's people. That's, that's your line and lineage. That's where you go back to. And so that story of what has happened to God's people, we can look back and see, just for, for them, they were still waiting. We know as Christians that that new world, if you like, would arrive first in the arrival of Jesus Christ, who would bring that into being in our world. But we know with that long view that that full and final relief still awaits completion and his return. It still awaits his new heaven and new earth. And I think it can help us. If you are, if you are somebody who has that sense of waiting, perhaps of groaning, uh, uh, awareness of the, the tensions in our world of, uh, of, of things not being right, to know that there is yet a full and a final relief for God's people. And it will come with Jesus' return. 
you're somebody who is waiting, perhaps you're uh, somebody, you may be somebody who's caring for an aging parent who knows the frailty of this world in their physical body, perhaps uh, waiting for a full and final resurrection. Someone who knows that full and final relief hasn't come yet. Maybe somebody you're, you're aware of just the hostility as a Christian in the world, some of the opposition and challenge it is to be a Christian and to know that that is reality. Jesus has brought his new world in, but we we await that full and final blessing and relief from God's enemies, ultimately in his return and in the new world that he brings. If I could use those words that uh, ends that particular um, clip, a new world, a new heaven, a new earth, that Jesus says will one day step forth and liberate this old world. And that's what the book of Esther, as we read it uh, as Christians, if you're a Christian here this morning, can bring and encourage us in. Why don't we pray together? Grace Father, we thank you so much for the book of Esther and uh, giving it to us in your word. And as it has um, delighted and encouraged us over these weeks, uh, seeing the twists and turns of your sovereign hand in your people as this ending reminds us your preservation of your people and yet, as they and we await that full and final blessing uh, in your Lord's return. Father, I pray that you would encourage us, you would strengthen us. We would see with, uh, with eyes that look on your hand over your people in history and on us now, I pray. Amen.